Hello, friends. We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And today we are joined by some very special guests. The masters of the middle brow are in the house. The hosts of Dadcore Cinema Club, Brandon and Charlie, are here. Fellas, how's it going today? Great. Pretty good. Pretty excited to talk about space. 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 And people, just guys, just fellas doing stuff. Guys being dudes, guys hanging out. Today we are talking about uh, Ron Howard's 1995 film, Apollo 13, about the Apollo 13 space mission. Who would have thought? Um, and this, I think, fellas, uh, is a exemplary uh, example of of the dad core cinema of the middle brow. I don't know how you feel about it and where it rates within your pantheon of dad core, but uh, but to me it felt like a, a very reasonable one to have you all on to discuss. Yeah, I think uh, it's pretty high up there. It it uh, checks off all the boxes we're usually looking for. I think. What are what are some dad core boxes? Experts doing like expert craftsmen doing stuff is like the number one thing, right? So we have a, a like a super accurate period piece. Um, I don't know how accurate it is. It feels good when I watch it though. Um, like historical like movies, uh, craftsmen that are just like ex- expert guys doing their job. Guys that are so dedicated to their job that maybe sometimes their life falls behind until they realize it. Yeah, and you usually have uh, guys that are like masters at what they're doing and have no real internal conflicts other than like their competency at what they're doing. That feels very right. Yeah, this is one of those good like, and I, I wrote this down. I said this is one of like my favorite guys doing stuff movies, and they're just like they're, like you said, hyper competent. Uh, it's the rest of the world, right? That doesn't quite understand. It's like they are are devoted and have this sort of singleness of purpose, and they're just like so committed to being the best at the thing that they do. Uh, that you know, you either either get on the bus or you you just hop off now. And there's also been this recurring theme in the movies that we've watched where like it's this idea that if you are uh, like steadfastly devoted to like your craft or your moral code, the the world will punish you for that. But also if you're so dedicated, you bend the world to your will and fate. So first and foremost, fellas, I want to know a little bit about uh, your history with this particular film, Apollo 13, uh, your feelings around it. I know mine. We'll talk a little bit about Carly's because I think there's a story there. But uh, Charlie, when was the first time that you saw Apollo 13? I mean, I know I saw it growing up. It was not like a big one for me, though. I watched it uh, a couple years ago for what felt like the first time had very little memory and brandon what about you uh i don't know when i first watch it like this movie is one of those movies i've watched so many times that it just stops being a movie and becomes like an ephemeral being in my memory uh i know i've watched it like a ton of times me and my friends were obsessed with it in high school we used to quote the uh we need to figure out how to make this fit in the hole for this use nothing but that constantly i just i love this movie i think it's like it's it's one of like the perfect it's like a perfect object of the cable classic. I think like they don't get more cable or, or classic ear than this. I think this might be the first time I've watched it not on cable, actually. Oh my gosh, really? It might be, yeah. I think that might be the case for me too, actually. I think every single time I've watched this, it has been uh with those 
those commercial breaks right in there with for like Bush's baked beans or something. Um, <laughs> Metamucil, depending on what time of day, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you're right. Like this is one of those like perfect, just like you flip on like TNT, it's on wherever it is in the movie, you stop and watch it. And despite like the jargon, it's incredibly accessible. Carly and I were having this conversation already that it's like, it is extremely accurate. It's extremely obsessed with getting all the technical elements of itself right. But it also just like, it it plays itself out and, and dramatizes everything in such a way that you can miss most of what's actually being said or like even like understanding what's being said. And you know implicitly sort of like what's being uh, what's at stake and and how it's making the characters feel. Yeah, I don't need to know what a gimbal is. I just need to know like they have to get it locked. They don't want it locked, Brandon. Oh, they don't want it locked. I'm sorry. <laughs> they cannot float that close to gimbal lock. It is dangerous. Good we job, understand Brandon. that much. You just killed Probably us gonna all. going to be correcting us this okay, I gotta time. I gotta eject from the podcast now. I I messed up. They're they're calling me out. It's this is my measles moment. We're getting Kevin Bacon in. He's taking over for the rest of the show. <laughs> Call me in at the end when you need me to fix it. We gotta restart the whole simulation now. Five more we hours do. back in the tank. We gotta do it. We gotta do it. We gotta get it right. But okay. wheels up at 0700. My entire family, my mom, my dad, my my younger sister, and myself. Watched this movie, I think a couple summers after it came out and we had it on VHS and we all sat down as a family one evening and watched it together. And that was the first time I saw this film and I was like hooked. Like I was totally blown away by it. I thought it was like the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. The ensuing months of my summer break between, I think it was, I was like eight. So this was several years after it came out. I I think between third and fourth grade, let's say thereabouts. I watched this film every single day without fail. I don't want to get into like the psychology of why I did that because I'm sure there's a lot of weird shit there. You just loved losing the moon but, day in and day out. <laughs> but I do think it speaks to something about this film that we're talking about, which is that it is this sort of perfect artifact of all the things you want from a film whether you are an adult or an eight-year-old child. Yeah, I could also see it working for a kid just because it is so visually accomplished. Mm -hmm. Like, if I'm a kid yes. watching that, I'm like, oh, they are in space, and that is a real rocket taking off. Like, it looks yes. still to this day so good. I I mean, I don't know if this is also a prerequisite of, of dad core cinema, but I definitely feel like jargon is maybe like, a tertiary category that we can oh. ascribe to that genre. I love the jargon in this movie. Like watching this as a child, I didn't know enough about space, right? To like understand every single word that they were saying, but they do such a good job of punctuating the jargon with some expository dialogue that feels organic to the diegesis of the film, whether it's a tour for a crowd of rubes in NASA or a news spot where they're explaining, you know, with sort of props and a fucking basketball, like what's happening or like conversations with the family. Yeah. There's a really sort of nice rhythm to the propulsion of the of the dialogue and the jargon itself, but then also these moments where the film reminds us or explains to us a little bit more what's going on. 
but doesn't stop the momentum of the movie. And as a child, it was very effective at communicating to me like, this thing means this. And you don't really have to know that, but you know enough of what's going on and how the actors are saying these words to understand the general idea of this like incredible science that they're laying out in front of you. Yeah, just the like moment to moment, uh, like dramatic conveyances do so much. Like there's a part where you see some kind of like vapor escaping from the module. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I know when they do a dolly zoom on Ed Harris's face, that means that it's very bad. Yes. <laughs> no, like you're right about um, jargon is I think, I love jargon in movies. I love it when dudes are spitting things. I mean, I don't understand. I sort of understand most of what they're saying in like the NASA HQ in this movie, but it yeah. doesn't matter because like you said the drama is uh, explained or communicated so well through just the filmmaking and just when they're getting to basic dialogue, there's a lot of just getting down to like, we're screwed. You know, like, make it simple, we're screwed. And when they have to explain the technicalities, it's so well done. I think one of my favorite scenes in the movie is just Tom Hanks explaining to his son how how it, how the landing's going to work. And he's just using a model, and it's such a beautiful thing. Cause like, they have to explain it to the audience, what's the tech of flying? But he has it explained to a child, and it's one of the sweetest moments of the movie. It's just it's just very kind, You and it communicates so much about his relationship with his kid, his love of his family, his confidence in the mission, and also communicating exposition on the, the the details of the mission for the audience it's a it's a wonderful i saw some contemporary reviews for this movie that said that it i think it actually may have even been our, our good friend roger ebert who said that this movie avoids like pumped up histrionics and i i find that a, a weird characterization especially for a ron howard film and, and watching it now like it very clearly has a lot of embellishment it has like the big mm -hmm. score it has a lot of like the dramatism but yeah i guess it's just it, maybe it is like the technicality of it maybe it is just that it's like so competent and and all of the characters and the actors are delivering all of these like very technical lines with this sense of ease that you kind of forget that you're watching something that is very clearly being manipulated mm -hmm. for uh, like maximum emotional impact yeah it's also just like by far the most effective ron howard has been as a director like, yes, absolutely. When you are so used to like what he's usually pumping out, this does feel very like uh, well crafted. I wanted to ask you all. I completely agree, Charlie. I, I wanted to ask you all why you think that is, because I was asking myself that question. Like, why is Ron Howard so good with this film? I think it's material. I think it's material in cast. Uh, Ron Howard is a competent director. He's like a he's a really good journeyman. I actually think he's mm -hmm. one of our most talented journeymen working right now. Just, but I think when you have just like basic filmmaking skills, like he's very he's very handy, but he doesn't so much of a style. So he can't. I don't think his directing can elevate a script or a cast that aren't also at that top level. And what I think we have here is a confluence of like all kinds of perfect elements that just happen to align. We have Ron Howard's interest in like mathematics, his love of science. He's a very like, I fucking love science guy um, paired with a cast that's way into their roles, mm -hmm. especially like Kathleen Quinlan, who brings like so much of the heart of the movie. She's amazing. Like we're talking about the yep. histrionics. She's, she's delivering so much of the emotional core of the film without overplaying it. She's amazing in this movie. Uh, and then you just have like a killer script. It's just, yeah, I think everything's just the stars aligned for a, a very like basic, clean directing style backed up by just everything else firing in all cylinders. 
I mean, when you think about it, too, he kind of is like adding in a lot of sentiment. Like if you take a broad view of the actual story, it's like a moon mission that no one really cared about that fucked up and everyone almost died Mm -hmm. and then they got home. Like, yeah, putting any kind of like family drama or like Mm -hmm. sentiment into there is added, I think. Like, I think you almost do need someone like Ron Howard with that kind of touch to, like, get anything out of this story other than just, like, some technical conveyance of what went wrong. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I saw you, like, maybe, you know, write this on, like, Letterboxd or something, Charlie, where you said that this is, like, this is a movie that, like, embellishes on and, like, dramatizes NASA's greatest failure. Uh, I think it was their finest hour. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that's the point, right? Is that like it It gets to be their finest hour because it shows the competency of all these people, uh, you know, who are facing the all of these all these odds, all these challenges, things that they they shouldn't be able to measure up to maybe that they didn't plan for and coming away, you know, throwing throwing everything at it and and winding up successful in getting these men back home. But it is just like interesting to see how triumphant this movie feels and and how much it works you over too. like i i feel that after leaving the movie it is uh you know i I have a heart i have a soul and uh, and it is touched every time by apollo 13 well it's a really good point because you don't ever question really save for maybe a few moments where the characters themselves kind of point to something you don't ever question like well like, why are the scrubbers on the LEM circular and the other ones square? Or like, why was this thing only designed to land on the moon and not do other stuff or whatever it is, right? I think like Ed, Ed Harris's character, I was at one point when um, they're dealing with one of those like pieces of like fucked up information that they have to deal with he looks to a character and says like, tell me this isn't a government operation. And it's like the one moment Mm -hmm. where like the movie kind of like goes like we fucked up, right? Like, yeah, we we made this problem and now we're solving it. But there are so many things that could have been avoided. Were this not a government operation and were we not racing to beat the Russians? Right. It's interesting too, because like, pretty deep into um like they're probably gonna die territory they're still like extremely bummed about not being able to go to the moon yeah like Tom yes. Hanks just looking out the that's window what they're like, really upset longing. about is the missed moonwalk yeah like this whole movie is driven by um tom hanks uh, what, Lovells is the character's name is like he's driven by this uh almost like hubris and ego the whole time uh, it's like they uh, Gary Sinise can't go up to space because he might have the measles and they warn him like he's like my team's not trained to go without Gary Sinise we can't do Kevin Bacon um, and they're like well you can just stay home and you go on the next one and he's like I gotta go he has to go to the moon so bad that he does it in a way that is not thoroughly trained for that he knows that the guy he's going with doesn't have chemistry with him which does kind of get strained between them and the ship that he knows he's going up there in a in, in a suboptimal way and yet the entire time he just has to go because he has to be the second guy to step on the moon they're back inside now looking up at us is that something i bet jenny armstrong doesn't get a wink of sleep tonight 
When you were on the far side, Onate, I didn't sleep at all. I just vacuumed over and over again. Christopher Columbus and Charles Lindbergh and Neil Armstrong. <laughs> Neil Armstrong. like I could just step out and walk on the face of it. I'm going to go back there. A bunch of other players here uh, are really to thank for this whole thing coming together, really mm-hmm. at the level that it, it does. Um, one of those, of course, being Tom Hanks, like our, our ultimate like Hollywood boomer dad, whose interests have like created and and i think spawned many of many a great middle brow movie uh you know he loves world war ii he loves typewriters he loves like cold war era stuff and he loves the space race um he kind of talked himself into this role if i'm not mistaken i think given that the real jim level has a, a striking kind of resemblance to kevin costner they were thinking him for the role i know that they initially offered the role to john travolta who turned it down. <laughs> mm. He it, this must have been like one of the first things after his like resurgence with pulp fiction along with like Get Shorty where they were like Travolta's back, let's get him in a movie, let's put him in space. He doesn't have like a 1969 yeah. face. No, he doesn't <laughs> at all. I I, I, I couldn't I, see Travolta. I could I could see Costner. I could see the cause doing this and I yes. would watch yeah. that movie. Yeah, I mean, he would just be, I mean, maybe doing a slightly less like Southern version of his uh, character from like JFK, but he's got the face. He's already got kind of like the period piece sort of chops to it. Um, But nonetheless, Hanks winds up being the guy. He brings a lot of his own expertise, his own interest. I'm sure he'd already read the Jim Lovell book that the story is based on cover to cover like five times. Um, and then of course, like uncredited here, I don't know how much actual influence he has on the script, but, uh, you know, the screenplay is credited to William Broyles Jr. And Al Reinert, uh, very famously though, has a uncredited revision done by the great John Sayles as well. Yeah. I saw that, uh, on Wikipedia. I, yeah, Yeah. that's wild. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of his money for his his personal projects gets made by you know doing these kind of script doctor things um and of course he and ron howard both kind of got their start working under the great roger corman who makes a cameo in this movie um he's the like senator guy who uh level talks to sort of on like the like gangplank and is like oh people are wondering why uh why we're still doing this even though we've already beat the russians to the moon that's that's roger corman oh my god i did not know that yeah that's wild um but, you know, I think in some sort of commentary in an interview, Howard claims that Sales only wrote the dialogue in the script for uh, Mama Level, for for uh, Ron Howard's real mother who plays Jim's mom in the movie. I don't buy that for a second. I also don't buy that. I think that downplays <laughs> his achievements significantly. But she is really good. That is a good role in that movie, though. She absolutely is. And her lines are great. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. She delivers some heaters. I but just, I just no. like to imagine like John Sales walking in, taking a look at the script, penning in uh, 
if a wash if they could get a washing machine to fly, my Jimmy could land it. <laughs> and then like cashing like a thirty thousand dollar check. A well earned thirty thousand yeah. dollar check. Well, I was gonna say, I mean, <laughs> if that's all he did. Absolutely. I'd pay it. I'd I love seeing all the all the Howards pop up. I feel like uh, Me too. I'm like a, yes. a Marvel nerd scanning the backgrounds for like comic book references. <laughs> <laughs> Only I'm I'm looking for Clint Howard's big bald head. I need yeah. to see him in movies. Clint also has a great like NASA 1970 face, <laughs> like especially with those thick rimmed glasses. Like it totally worked for me. He's just got a great face. It's bizarre yeah. that his brother is the only one wanting to put him in movies. We were talking about that when we were watching. We yeah, were like I mean, he's got a he's got a, a strong sort of like real guy character actor face. He's got a very distinctive mug, you know. It, he I mean, he looks like I know that he and Ron aren't twins, right? They're not twins. No. But no. like it it almost looks like he's the one who like almost got consumed in the womb, <laughs> who like <laughs> fought himself out. But like I mean, he's a very accomplished actor in his own right. I think he's 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 got, you know, good dramatic chops. He's very funny too. I've seen him do, you know, mm-hmm. comedy really well. Like I just watched the Seinfeld episode that he was in like the night before I watched yes! this movie. Oh, I forgot about that. He's everywhere. That's, He's that's haunting me right now. <laughs> love, lovely synchronicity, Charlie. The Howard Cinematic Universe, though, is is big and vast. And I think, yeah, all of the Howards are put to good use here in in Ron's movie. Um, it, just everything firing at all cylinders here as well. The James Horner score, it sounds like a James Horner score. Like you, you hear it right away. Um, and it just, I don't know. It, it, it comes in at all the right points. It sounds lovely. It moves me. That lone trumpet. <laughs> yeah, like I remember thinking um, that it was a good score and like effective, but I can't r- think of any like themes or motifs from it. It's like no, we it, got an AI to listen to a thousand Oscar scores, and this is what it <laughs> produced. Yes, it, it's moving while you watch it. it. Yeah, like I don't remember it. It's like Ron Howard's direction, right? Very effective while I'm in the movie not necessarily thinking about his like the specific tools that they're using when I'm when I'm not watching it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And that's like almost like, you know, the I, you get that sense that everyone in this is kind of operating on that very sort of like journeyman level, right? Where it's like everything is almost sort of like invisible. Like the hands at work here are not calling attention to themselves. It all just feels authentic. It all feels lived in. It all feels highly competent. It tells a good story. I'm moved by it. It it sends the message to me that I want it to. Uh, I have a sense of patriotism again. It just it all just works and it operates in like almost as kind of like invisible capacity, like subconsciously, yeah. that it sort of masks some of the more like interesting kind of like thematic things that are going on here. And and like we already mentioned, that a lot of this movie is really kind of about being disappointed. Like the entire thing is just sort of about like people not getting the thing that they want. Yeah, except Jack Swaggart. Yeah, Jack Swaggart. Right, but getting, he also he also getting pussy in the shower and going to space. Right. Yeah, and, I was thinking know, like, wow, it's very goofy that the uh, the sex guy's name is Jack Swaggart, but that was a real guy. They didn't make that, <laughs> that name. Was a real, real guy. guy. Yeah. And like you said, uh, we were talking about before, like the excellence of that scene is invisible. And I want to be clear when we we're talking about that earlier. That is one of the greatest values that like a journeyman middlebrow film can have that is a that is excellence at, at its highest level like th- those performances are invisible no one's showy but you get a sense of every single guy in that room feels like a real nasa guy doing real yes. nasa stuff i think a really important small little bit um during that whole thing too is the tom hanks continuing to glance at the abort 
switch mm-hmm. like while everything's yeah. happening yes. that, like mm-hmm. despite his like undying dream to step on the moon and everything he's done to get here and like the hyper competency of everyone involved that this is still extremely scary and like he could pull the plug at any moment during this big elaborate uh countdown yeah they yeah. have that um center engine five cutoff right in in the very beginning of their launch sequence it's a it's a beautiful sort of little flourish that anticipates the panic that comes mm-hmm. later because as you know an audience member like you know something goes wrong when you're watching this film already going into watching it right that's the whole point that we're point of why we're here so like it's it's this moment of like is this when it all starts and it ends up being benign but but it does kind of as you're saying charlie like it puts you in that uh that headspace of like there is danger every step of the way, despite the fact that we are surrounded by men who are competent and um, and know what they're doing. And I love that it's not the first bit of foreshadowing in the movie because that that starts with the car. Uh, yes. Early in the movie, they're going to an event and his car stalls out at a red light mm-hmm. and he can't. And he's like, that's the second time that's happened. And that is a couple of scenes after he just told his son that we fixed the mistakes in the sh- in the shuttle. We can't get a second mistake. It can't happen again. And so even from like minute one of this movie, we're foreshadowing things have gone wrong before we fix them, but that doesn't mean that things can't go wrong again. There are so many omens like that throughout the movie. And I think that they do a really good job of planting them. You know, if you're looking for them, they're, they're not terribly subtle, mm-hmm. but if you are going into this blind, if you had never heard about, you know, the, the circumstances of the Apollo 13 mission, you still feel them, but you don't quite know what they're signaling yet. I, mm-hmm. But I love those, you know, there's also like, one of the like biggest and most profound one I think is Kathleen Quinlan losing her ring in the shower, like right mm-hmm. before the launch as well, mm-hmm. which me. apparently Jim Lovell claims actually happened. I think it's even in his book that like a couple of those things, like the car stalling and, and like the, her losing her ring, like are, are real details and not just embellishments for the purpose of a script. Well, and they didn't make up, you know, launching at 1300 hours, uh, you know, getting into the moon's orbit on the 13th day, like all of those things were real details yeah. too. Mm. Um, you almost wonder why they decided to do that. <laughs> they had it out for them. It was the deep state. They it wanted, the they wanted state. to sabotage level. <laughs> I mean, there's like, there's definitely a lot of like, I think it's easy to forget this because it kicks the movie off and already you're like in it. Um, but the movie opens with Walter Cronkite's voice mm-hmm. narrating the Apollo, uh, Nine, 11, 11, 11 moon landing. And literally, I think the second line out of his mouth is referencing the astronauts that died in the fire, um, which we learn about after the fact. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the movie opens with that. It opens with real uh, f- uh, footage and and recording audio recordings of Walter Cronkite talking about the things that have gone wrong prior to this Apollo 11 moon landing. I think that all also feeds into like this idea that the movie has that like you can be so competent and like good at math and science that you can overcome like supernatural unluck forces that are working against you. Like yes. you can become such a master of the universe that you can overcome the yeah. the bad luck. You bend fate to your will. And 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 bend like the the sort of natural order of things, right? right. Like I kept thinking when we were watching this, I was like, 
I can't fucking believe we did this. Like, I can't believe we fucking flew to space in like the 50s and 60s. If you all have seen the right stuff, I mean, like where this program started with with fighter pilots, like mm-hmm. it, it's just it blows my mind every time I watch this film or even something like First Man, where I'm just like, just such an Icarian effort in my in my mind that we ever did this, which is one of the reasons it still stirs up that kind of like awe and and reverence that you have mm-hmm. for it. It's funny you say that because one of the main like threads, like bits of the movie is that like within a year of the moon landing no one really gives a shit anymore yeah they're all just over it (laughs) no one cares you couldn't go to the moon today (laughs) there's that line like where she says uh after the reporters have decided they've they want you know a story about all of the shit that's gone wrong and they want to like interview her or whatever and marilyn lovell says you know, they didn't care about them landing on the moon. Why should not landing on it be any different? And I love that line. And yeah. it's just like a perfect example of like, oh, yeah, now that like these guys' lives are at stake, we've we've got something to care about. But we were watching baseball. It's interesting that we like, you know, in, in the modern context and with like Twitter and shit talk about just how like the discourse cycle is so abrupt and short and that like time is flattening itself and that you know, we move on to the next thing before the other thing is even like out and in the world and being talked about at large, whatever. But it is funny to watch that, you know, being just sort of like a, I don't know, a symptom of like the news cycle, even in 1970 and watching, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and going back to that, that opening, I know we're jumping around a lot chronologically, but like the Cronkite stuff starts with like that conversation about, the uh the astronauts dying in the fire in one of the earlier apollo missions and then when they land on the moon and everyone is cheering and celebrating the thing that the that we focus on filmically is cronkite and his reaction Mm -hmm. where you kind of like see that very candid moment where he's not really like on a hot mic and and he knows that like they're they're broadcasting live from the moonwalk where he kind of like pulls his glasses off because they're getting foggy and he's like bewildered just like looking at the guys like off off stage like can you believe this this is incredible um and it's just interesting to see that and then show how quickly it becomes uh, rote it becomes boredom it becomes Mm -hmm. like something that nobody cares about um and it's interesting where like the movie points the finger (laughs) in that regard too you know like uh they briefly touch on as we already mentioned that that notion that you know, oh, we we beat the Russians, like we're good, right? Like people are asking, like, why do we why should we keep doing this? We already we already did the thing we set out to accomplish. But more often than not, it's not, you know, political actors, it's not uh like a, a media apparatus that like you know focuses on another thing. It, it is a little bit, but it's mostly like it points the finger at like culture or at like people, you know, that that they're not committed enough to the idea of exploration or this idea of like human achievement to care anymore right tom hanks has a line that i thought was very funny when someone like asked him what the point is of going back uh and he says like what if after columbus had come to america no one came back and i was like "Uh, probably a better life for millions of people (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah well maybe we should stop going to the moon (laughs) we'll talk about some of like 
I, there's a, a thesis to be drawn out here about like the way this movie, along with a lot of stuff in the 90s, that's like a period piece masks the the more imperial tendencies of a lot mm-hmm. of the greatest generations, uh, you know, sort of cultural and political projects. Mm. But yeah, inherent to that is a is a uh, support of like the American project going back to the beginning, like in everything that has happened yes. since. It, it is. It's always just like the the moral good and like righteousness of everything that mm-hmm. we always do. Right. And that like space exploration is part of that. And this movie like certainly uh, romanticizes it that way, mm-hmm. right? It 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 does acknowledge the political trappings. It does acknowledge like some of the ulterior reasons. But what it ultimately tries to say and tries to convince us as viewers of is, no, no, no. This is like a a romantic ideal. This is mm-hmm. like this is uh, what we should all strive for. Is is the yeah. resuscitation and revitalization of this curiosity and this exploration and and. Uh, billions of dollars of subsidized tax dollars, you know, uh, to to get us to wherever we need to go next. It's presented as some kind of like rhetorical truism that like not even something to actually think about. It's just like, yeah, that's yeah. why wouldn't we go back? That's just the way. But I was thinking about a lot um, in regards to this movie and when it came out that like you almost couldn't make this movie outside of 1995. It is tied no. very deeply in with the 90s uh, nostalgia for the 60s as boomer generation gets into their 30s. At least my yep. parents from the 30s, um, and like are looking back on their childhood or slightly before their childhood, and uh, romanticizing what went on then, but also at a period where we still had a space program that had facilities that could potentially go back to the moon, and before that kind of got scaled back a bit in the later after the 2000s, and also tied to an America that was maybe a little less cynical about its own history and its own uh, international projects in a pre 9/11 world. Absolutely. And we were talking about this too, you know, just earlier today before we got on mic, which is that, I mean, this is like an ultimate end of history movie, right? Mm -hmm. Like this can only happen, as you said, Brandon, in the 90s, at the end of the Cold War, like in this particular era. Um, And it is. And that close to the Cold War. Yes, exactly. Like it's, I mean, it's still in proximity. And the thing about the 90s that, you know, you also articulated that 9-11 hadn't happened yet. We hadn't had this sort of resuscitated, unified project of American imperialism. We were like very ideologically adrift in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it manifested in all kinds of ways. People who actually like, you know, question those sort of grand narratives of, of America and what it means to be a society. People who like, uh, you know, just felt like a, a this like really upending, like earth shattering kind of like realization of like, what if everything's fake in a simulation, um, which we see play out in like the, the late 90s. But this one is like doubling down on those narratives from from their parents generation, which is like, no, 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 this is when men were men. And, uh, you know, we did things. It's like, you know, that, this country used to make things. Moment <laughs> where it's like, we don't have our great war. We don't have our space race. We don't have our our singular enemy that we need to beat uh, and, and prove our superiority over. What do we do? Well, folks like Howard and Spielberg, they, they look backward. They reflect and they yeah. celebrate that generation while also adding in this kind of layer of uh, a word I keep coming back to just like disappointment, right? Like it's, it's like this kind of like, well now what sort of thing that the movie sort of ends on. And and that kind of not to jump to the ending, but that's kind of like the end note of the movie is we did it. We made it back safe. And also like this project is sort of 
wrapped up. Like we're not doing this anymore. There's there's a disappointment throughout the whole movie. Yeah, I think too, this movie is also kind of like forwarding this idea that like, even if you're not like making any great achievements, like there's no great enemy to be defeated anymore. Like we've already been to the moon that like there is some kind of like value and like romantic heroism in just like going to work and doing your job very well. Mm -hmm. The only the only enemy left to defeat is our own complacency. Yeah, <laughs> that's neoliberalism in a nutshell. Yeah, we just I mean, that, yeah that's... we need to make a space empire is what the movie is saying. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, they do make that point explicitly, right? He he directly references Columbus at the beginning. There's sort of like that idea that like the next step is is moon bases, right? Like that we're yeah. going to start colonizing other other planets in the galaxy. Did we ever end up doing that? <laughs> I haven't seen any of the other movies in the franchise, so. I don't know. I think I think they went there in Apollo 15. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the documentary Apollo 11 is like incredibly good. It's just all like restored ar- archival footage um with no narration or anything. Uh but like you can see I thought it was a cool touch in this one that at the launch site you see the guy on the big rig with like a million telephoto lenses on it. It was just making me think of Apollo 11 because of like the insane footage they have of the launch that they use for the documentary. Apollo 13 flight controllers, listen up. Give me a go, no go for launch. Booster. Go. Retro. Go. Vital. We go fly. Guidance. Guidance go. Surgeon. Go fly. Ecom. We're go flight. GNC. We're go. Tell me you. Go. Control. Go flight. Procedures. Go. Inco. Go. FAO. We are go. Network. Go. Recovery. Go. Capcom. We're go flight. Launch control. This is Houston. We are go for launch. Roger that, Houston. We are go for launch. T minus 60 seconds and counting. When you mention all that archival footage that they're able to pull from the Apollo 11 mission for that documentary, it makes me realize um, that there's none of that in this film, despite the fact that there's probably an abundance of actual footage and audio tapes and what have you. Howard was really insistent upon using absolutely no footage whatsoever from the real Apollo 13 uh, mission and flight. So everything that you see in the film outside of maybe some like early footage from from previous missions, all the newsreel footage um, is all stuff that is created especially for for the film. And I think it's really effective in doing that. You know, like we talked about just sort of how strategically they shot the thing and, and how good it still looks from an effects level. Part of that, of course, being the fact that they used um, that Boeing KC-135, right, to like actually simulate zero G for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like flew them in this kind of like parabola sort of like uh, pattern to give them something like what, 25, 28 seconds of of zero G to shoot something. That's incredible. I like, can you, I can't imagine how many times you would have to facilitate doing that and how many of those dives you would have to do in order to get all the footage. Like if you fuck up a take, like, (laughs) I mean, that's, you got to do that again. You only get those 20 seconds. There's tons of weightless footage in the movie, too. Yes. Like, it really doesn't seem like they had a few days to shoot all of that. It seems like they did hundreds and hundreds of loops on that plane. They had to have. I think they did They had to have because 
and the other thing I wanted to say about this is like when I when I was thinking about the actual logistics of getting that footage and how small of a window they had each time to to have that weightlessness. I was also thinking about the actors and just sort of their ability to to do a tremendous job on on sort of the continuity of the moments, right? Despite the fact that there were probably several minutes if not, you know, hours in between each of these weightless mm. kind of like 15 to 20 second chunks that they were shooting where you know they they're maybe getting like two or three lines shot off. It's it really is incredible work. Uh like I don't know, I think I would get sick filming that. I feel like I can't make it through there. I feel like th- you wouldn't have to use like effects for uh Bill Paxton puking because that would just be me actually going. <laughs> And it looks like they actually did that scene. I mean, I don't think that Bill Paxton actually vomited, but it does look like they did that scene as one of their zero G like, drops where like they did. you can see the chunks of it kind of like floating mm-hmm. around in the in the, the cockpit. It'd be a good bit of trivia. We did not plan the puke shot. Uh, it just <laughs> happy <laughs> accidents hap- on set. God. Yeah. And it, again, another one of those omens, you know, Paxton getting sick from the get-go and and just like being feverish and and mm. decrepit for the rest of the flight. Um, it all it all adds up. He's so what a great performance from Paxton. I just love him in anything. I love his screen presence. I love what he brings to any role just by look, being there. I like looking at him. I like hearing him talk. Yes, he's magnificent. My dad has always been like a major Bill Paxton hater. Like I grew up in a household that like had one parent not liking Bill Paxton and <laughs> I never understood it. It never made any sense to me. I always liked him. Like my first experiences with him were like Twister and him as uh, uh Hudson and aliens. And I was like, this guy's mm-hmm. awesome. Like, what are you talking Greatest. about? Yeah. He's the best. Um, and maybe it was just like a form of like, you know, youthful rebellion that I like love Paxton as much as I do, but he is fantastic. All, all of them are doing tremendous work. I mean, mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon's good in this, but I think like for me, maybe like the dark horse, Kathleen Quinlan also, I think, maybe like the best uh, performance in the movie. But my Dark Horse candidate right up there, too, is Gary Sinise. I think that he just like gives an incredible performance. I think he gets to like play that hyper competent guy. But outside of like the the immediate threat that the others are facing, he has like that kind of like workman uh, sort of ethos that that helps save everybody. I don't know. I just really like him in this movie. Yeah, it's a really sympathetic character, too, that like. He has every right to just be really disappointed and not like give his all to this mission that he's not really even a part of anymore. And he still just comes in and does his damn job. He's got some of my like favorite directed sequences in the movie too. just the way that they express his loneliness, which is very, it's kind of heavy handed, but I love it. Like the scene where he finds out that he can't fly is just, it's a close up on him alone. And he's the entirely alone in the shot. And as we zoom out, we see how isolated he is in the center of the frame. And then, uh, and on the left and right side of the screen come in the backs of Hanks and, and Paxton showing that yes. they are opposite of him while he is isolated. He is the guy being left behind. He's comforted only by his sick ass car. Uh, and like all the cans <laughs> of PBR he's pounding at home. I know. He watches the news. And, and I, it's, they have that like one shot where we get to see the interior of his, of his house. Right. And there's just like shit everywhere. And he's like got his phone off the hook presumably because he's depressed about not going on this mission or maybe he has the measles yes (laughs) (laughs) they sequence that that little moment too really well you know he like comes home with like the sixer and like unplugs his phone and pounds a couple beers watching dick cavett and then he like gets up and turns off the tv 
with us you give we have like just a, a split second where we see apollo 13 special report before he shuts it off like before he can hear it but we know we know it doesn't like get on. immediately match cut to a different tv showing the broadcast so we can keep watching it i think so I think yeah. you're right about yeah. that as a viewer we can't not see the broadcast right we have to know what's going on but uh, but it's important for Gary Sinise's character not to. Hanks and Sinise, by the way, just loved making movies together in the mid '90s. I guess Hanks was just on a crazy run at this at point. this time period. Yeah, yeah. Had, oh, just yeah. one back to back Oscars. This is not like a important or novel thing to say, but he's so fucking good in this movie. <laughs> like he's just he is Jim Lovell, but. Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything smart to say about it other than, like, we all know Tom Hanks is a great actor, and, like, this is one of those films where I'm like, yeah, he is. I think in particular with the jargon, it all feels so comfortable, like, in his mouth, in his hands, like, he's, he, he feels like an astronaut. He's acting through some very bad hair, which is impressive to me. (laughs) He is. (laughs) They have to give him, like, a really high... Like yeah, like military cut. Yeah. yeah, he looks like Vegeta. Yeah. He does kind of look like Vegeta. <laughs> uh, this is Houston. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. We have a main bus B undervolt. We've got a lot of thruster What's activity here, Houston. Now? It just went offline. Oh, there's another master alarm, Houston. I'm checking the quad. Christ, that was no refresh valve. Maybe it's in quad We've C. got a computer restart. I'm going to reconfigure the RCS. We've got a big light. Fire fire doesn't make any sense. We've got multiple caution and warning, Houston. We've got a reset restart. All right, I'm going to SDS. Jesus. Flight, they're all over the place. They keep going close to gimbal lock. I, I keep losing radio signal. Flight, they're, they're in tandem. Right, they're going to have to do it manually. If they do one at a time, people. One at a time. One at a time. Ecom, is this an instrumentation problem, or are we looking at real power loss here? It's, it's reading a quadruple failure. That can't happen. It's, it's got to be instrumentation. Let's get that hatch button. The limb might have been hit by a meteor. Yep. The tunnel's really torqued with all the Uh, Houston, we got a pretty large bang there associated with a master alarm. Shit, it's main bus A. Main bus A undervolt? Houston, we have a main bus A undervolt now, too. Uh, it's reading 25 and a half. Main bus B is reading zip right now. We got a wicked shimmy up here. Ecom, GNC, these guys are talking about bangs and shimmies up there. Doesn't sound like instrumentation to me. Okay, Houston, fuel cell one, fuel cell three. We got a main bus B undervolt, cryo pressure, suit compressor. What don't we have? AC bus one, AC bus two, command module computer, and O2 flow high. Well, I don't, I don't know. Maybe this is a caution and warning. Failure. Houston, we are venting something out into space. One of the other great marks, I feel like, of dad core cinema that this film exemplifies is just a veritable who's who of great uh, character actors, middle-aged character actors, and they all show up as the various flight controllers in this. You've got Chris Ellis as Deke, uh, Xander Berkeley, who's kind of like the PR guy, great, great, like, character actor face always kind of reminds me of um jt walsh 
little bit. Kind of has like a JT Walsh face ever so slightly. Oh, no, little, he looks like Nesmith from the monkeys to me. He does kind of look like that too. Um, but James Ritz is here as well. Wayne Duvall, Brett Cullen. The great Ray McKinnon is Fido yeah, as well. Yeah, Vernon T. Waldrop. Yes. He's bona fide. <laughs> so good. Um, and they And they all do like magnificent work here as well. You know, like everyone is also firing on all cylinders. My understanding is that along with Ed Harris, all of these guys took like a crash course flight controller school. Like they Mm -hmm. actually had real NASA flight controllers train them. They spent hours upon hours studying uh, audio tapes of the mission control recordings. Um, They even all took like (laughs) physics courses that they could even sort of like kind of grasp and understand what they were talking about. uh, You know, when Harris draws two circles with a, with a little like figure eight between them. Yeah. They need to know which one was the moon and which one was earth. (laughs) That's right. Yes. Yeah. Crash course in physics tells you big one, earth, little one moon. Maybe that was it. Maybe that's all they had to learn, but no, they all do such a magnificent job here. And it's always just like fun to see like half a dozen of these guys pop up in one movie where you're usually, Mm -hmm. you know, you, movies usually like relegate this, like one or two of these guys showing up as like a, a judge or a, a detective or something and no they're all here in this one yeah you got a, a whole room full of that guys but on the point about the character actors like i think the actual like mission control stuff is my favorite stuff in the movie as gripping as the stuff in the shuttle is i really like watching ed harris do stuff in movies and talk and take command yeah. and anytime ed harris is on screen that's movies and i'm there and I just i just i love it because it's all the moments of it grounds all the drama of what's happening in the capsule because the the our three our three astronauts are kind of chill. They, they kind of keep their cool most of the movie, but then we go back to mission control. and Those guys are freaking out at all times. It's just because they yes. usually have information that the guys in space don't. So they give us our like emotional stakes. I love watching them grapple with their grip with all of the problems that pop up. And then also had Ed Harris is just, he's, he's got that goofy haircut. He's in charge. He's got a vest on that his wife made. Yes. Mm. I love his reveal because love- with the vest, Yes, I was going to say I love it's all so of the, all the pretense around like him getting the vest, putting the vest on. Everyone keep him off camera person. the whole time yes. they're bringing the vest to him, and he puts the hand him the vest, and you see hands reach out and take the vest, but he's off camera. They cut to a different scene, and you do not see him until they cut back, and he's finishing putting the vest on. It's like a big reveal that it's Ed Harris. Yes. It's great. I like in my in my heart of hearts have like a vision of. Uh, what's his name dennis dennis uh hooper on on twitter cutting one of those like videos that he does with like the crowd watching the the Mm -hmm. tv at the Uh bar and when ed harris finally gets revealed the crowd just like (laughs) goes nuts and like throws their beers that's a good be me i would be one of those people in that crowd yeah i really like that he's his job is seemingly to just tell people to get it done Mm -hmm. and uh like oh no you don't understand we will get it done there's he's, yeah. he's not really like contributing anything other than being like, hey, we got to save these guys up there. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you guys Definition are doing. Definition of like senior leadership in yeah. in any corporate or government setting. Right. Yeah. That's another very 90s thing here, too, is right. Kind of like this uh, this fetishization of that, like uh managerial kind of role right Mm -hmm. like there there is also like a celebration of the workers a celebration of like 
you know, the, the sciencey brainy guys who are working like on, on two hours of sleep. Uh, again, though, it still is uh, also sort of that like meritocratic, like knowledge economy. Yeah. It's all white collar jobs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But specifically like uh, lionizing Ed Harris's character, right. That, like you said, like he doesn't really have like a unique skill set in, in any of these sort of, uh, mathematical or scientific kind of disciplines but he's a great project manager he's a great like you know telling everyone to get it done telling the folks who are asking the questions like we will get it done slamming his fist down whenever people doubt um, and just yelling at everybody like about deadlines like that that's what you need in the room you know i can't remember like the exact line but he has a lot of lines that are basically like don't tell me don't tell me what we have tell me what we can do with it like that's basically every one of his lines in the movie he's there to be like Look, you guys do the numbers. We're getting it done. We're getting these guys home. That's all I know. And by my sheer force of will, we're going to do it. Right. You also get the sense, too, that without his, like, manly man attitude, all these weird nerds would just be having, like, little petty infights with each other and doing nothing. You need a jock. It's, like, so perfect that all of them kind of, I mean, you know, they even, like, even the hot guy scientists, like, they nerd up a lot, right? Like, everyone is very, like, uh, pocket protectors and kind of bad haircuts and glasses, a little, like, you know, kind of bad hygiene, a little sweaty. Uh, and then you've got Ed Harris, who's just, like, chiseled with, like, a fucking, like, military, like, flat top, right? Mm-hmm. And he's, like, the cool guy in the room. He's the only one who has, like, the people skills and, like, the social intelligence. It's him and Capcom. Yeah. They're the two hotties in command who, like, keep their cool. Capcom is in a powder blue turtleneck sweater, and he's just looking right. Yeah. Yeah, short sleeve turtleneck. Very nice. That's right. I mean, I was into it. The great Brett Cullen, man. (laughs) Brett Cullen doing a great job in this film. Uh, The thing you all are making me think of is just to sidetrack on this sort of, like, idea of, like, the managerial prowess of a person like Ed Harris's character – in the 90s in particular, like with the meritocracy and the technocracy sort of like rising to ascension in, you know, uh, sort of political and national prevalence in in ways that it hadn't necessarily before. Like the thing that's always implied in an Ed Harris's character type is that he got there because he used to do all the stuff that all the people he's managing um, did like he knows all the all the knowledge he has all the knowledge he has all the experience and now he's fit to actually lead these men but like we know that in real life that a lot of times like mediocrity rises to the top right so it's not always like the person who's done all the jobs or like has uh you know all the experience that the guys that they're managing and I'm not saying that of Gene Krantz but I do think it's interesting that that's sort of like mm-hmm. that's the narrative we imply when we see a manager type like him, mm-hmm. especially in the nineties, if you want to talk about like the difference, the stark difference between a guy who is now 68, uh, Ron Howard. So he's uh, the boomer generation. And you contrast him with what gen X uh, filmmakers were making in the nineties. If you look at wh- what is, what is the manager represented as in something like the matrix where mm-hmm. managerial yes. roles and like the office job is a part of like a broader system of control. Uh, or we look at like a Kevin Smith for whom like there's like a listlessness and that is the individual worker has no aim and like the movie clerks. Um, there is such like a, a Jenna X guy would not have or Gen X director of uh, would not have made this movie this way, this reverent. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's very much like a boomer sensibility. And maybe now a Gen X sensibility. Like they have totally become that boomer, boomer mm-hmm. generation. Yeah, they're all the managers now. They're all yeah, the specifically managers within now, the 90s at least. Yeah, it does yes, kind of absolutely. feel though that like he felt like this rising tide of like the Bill Lumberg manager and like <laughs> hating your office job and was like, I need to make a movie about how <laughs> daily workers, nerds and managers are like cool heroes that run the world. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think there is definitely like coming out of that sort of slacker impetus of the early 90s. Like this is absolutely some sort of, if not direct, indirect response to that sort of antagonism probably being felt by the the boomer generation who were, you know, largely in power at that time. Mm-hmm. And lest we forget, you know, that uh, Ron Howard himself you know, is is of this boomer generation, but got his start acting on Happy Days, playing someone significantly older than he is of like his like of like a, a different generation, maybe like generation just ahead of his, right? Like this is like 50s, 60s. He's already like a teenager growing up instead of like you know being in the, that same age in the in the 70s, and so like I don't know, he's just like always steeped in that kind of like good old fashioned like American sensibility around like the worker, but also like the boss and like that thing being like, you know, the ladder that you climb and the person you respect. There's a a line towards the very beginning of the movie that I think speaks to this like really directly where Tom Hanks is saying like, we walked on the moon and it wasn't a miracle. We just decided to go mm-hmm. like, mm. oh, if you just get out, you can like, you can do things if you just yes. do them. And like, yes. I think that ties back into like the, like America at the end of history thing. It's like, we just need to do, we just need to be doing again. Like we used to, we do. could do this and we're choosing not to right now is what the movie's yeah. basically, mm-hmm. this, this movie is explicitly saying, not even basically, it's just, it's explicitly the theme. If there is a theme to this movie, it's we should go to space again. In the nineties, we have the means. One of the things that I praise Howard for in this. And one of the things that I think is always like sort of like a benchmark or like a watermark that you can set to judge our journeyman directors by is how well they can dramatize and 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 pull some sort of like emotional response out of the most mundane task. And in this one, it's literally doing math problems on a page. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that moment like in the control center. And again, they they find a way to also like simultaneously make it look cool in the control center and also valorize uh, Jim Lovell by being like, look at this guy under distress doing these really complex, these really complex Literal problems. fucking cosines yeah. in there. Like, like, like do it, doing like physics equations, like scribbling them down, like on a pad while they're like about to die and losing oxygen. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, I just, I just need you all to check my arithmetic. Yeah. And, and seven guys check it. Yes. And I love that shot where it's just like it's it's kind of like the slow rack focus down the line where each guy like picks up a pencil and just like leans into shot and starts going at it and like furiously scribbling the math problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's uh, like it's it's good. And you like high stakes math, high stakes math. You're holding your breath that entire Quick time. Quick maths. <laughs> Today, something like that would just be like coding and a guy sitting in front of a computer like there is something way more cinematic and tactile about like getting into the big simulation machine and dreaming about computers yes. that can fit into one single room like they do at the B 
beginning of the movie. Like it's no, more I, inherently I'm, I'm cinematic. I'm pretty serious about loving knobs and, and switches and joysticks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And literal rulers, guys, mm. like a slide ruler. And I'm like, fuck. What yeah. is that? It's all very exciting. <laughs> I love I love the way that they also dramatize like Sinise's re-entry into the story. Like mm-hmm. it, it sort of cinematically almost kind of subconsciously evokes that like loose cannon cop, right? Where he's like kind of like strung out and drunk and they have to like wake him up in the middle of the night. And they're like, <laughs> they're like, we need you. You're the only one for the job. You're the only one who can do it. And he's like, you know, I like in maybe in like a, a different kind of movie, he'd be like in bed with like three women and like lines of coke, like on like the, the, the bedside <laughs> table. But it's like, you know, like they just like wake him from his like drunken stupor and they're like, get dressed. And in the very next scene, like it's the middle of the night. He's at mission control and he's found a way to like have like his hair perfectly combed. Mm. He's got like a shirt and tie on, like in a suit jacket. Like he's dressed and ready to go. He doesn't have bags under his eyes. He looks, he looks like a plus. And he's like, let's get to work. I mean, he's a professional. So he's a military of course man. he does. He's yeah. a military man. Yeah, that's right. He just immediately too takes over as the guy like on the mic, like from Capcom Two or whatever. Yep. It's like good job as the talking guy, but like the doer is here now, and he is in control. <laughs> Yeah. And there's like, you kind of understand that there's, I mean, I'm sure they did that for cinematic reasons, but I have to imagine that that is also what they did in real life, partially because these men are at the end of, you know, nearly losing their lives 20, 30 times over the course of the, this trip around the moon. And now they need to reenter the earth's atmosphere. Like they're in the final leg of whether or not all of what they've been through will be worth anything. And it makes sense that their pilot who was going to go up on the mission with them in the first place is the one that guides them home. Not just because it's his plan that he's relaying to them, but also because of the relationship he has with these men. Um, And that he does clearly have a a calming, a calming um, presence when it comes to the situations that they're in. Okay, people, listen up. I want you all to forget the flight plan. From this moment on, we are improvising a new mission. They are here. We turn around, straight back, yes. direct abort. No, no, sir. No, sir. We get them on a free return trajectory. It's the option with the fewest question marks for safety. No, the LEM will not support three guys for that amount of time. It barely holds I mean, we've got to do a direct abort. We don't even know if the Odyssey's engine's even working, and if there's been serious damage to this spacecraft... They blow up and they die. That is not the argument. We're talking about time, not whether or not these guys... I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. Let's hold it down. Let's hold it down, people. The only engine we've got with enough power for a direct abort is the SPS on the service module. What Lovell has told us, it could have been damaged in an explosion. So let's consider that engine dead. Once we get the guys around the moon, we'll fire up the LEM engine, make a long burn, pick up some speed, get them home as quick as we can. Gene, I'm wondering what the what the Grumman guys think about this. We can't make any guarantees. We designed the LEM to land on the moon. Not fire the engine out there for course correction. Well, unfortunately, we're not landing on the moon, are we? I don't care what anything was designed to do. Care about what it can do. So let's get to work. Let's lay it out. Okay. Let's let's talk. We've already talked about her a little bit, but let's talk more about Kathleen Quinlan as as the lady level. 
in this movie because she, I think, maybe delivers, uh, you know, if not the best, one of the best performances in the movie. She is like, hey, she's the pathos and and all of just like the 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 drama at home for these characters. And it, it would be so easy, I think, for them to malign this character and make her just sort of like a weepy housewife and they Mm -hmm. they make this character very formidable and and kathleen quinlan uh just like knocks it out of the park absolutely yeah she it's a difficult thing to play too because she's like playing someone that uh has like been through this before to like a large extent like this isn't his first space mission so she asked she's playing like afraid for him but also someone that like has some knowledge of being in this kind of situation yeah she's aggrieved by the history of all of their experiences and his space flights that we don't get to see but we know are there because of how she delivers these lines there's a really great moment that i wrote down specifically because it stood out to me this time when he comes home I think it's Halloween and like his eldest daughter wants to, you know, wear like a flower child outfit and she's fighting about it or whatever it is. He comes home and he tells, uh, he has to tell Marilyn that um, he's been bumped up to the prime crew of Apollo 13. The mission's in, I think, six months. Mm -hmm. Um, And he says to her one line, uh, you know that trip to Acapulco we were thinking of taking in the spring. And he's like, it looks like, you know, there's going to be a change of location or plans or whatever he says. I'm butchering the line. But she says one thing in between that punctuates it. She says, uh-oh. And in that uh-oh, like, you hear the dread of a woman who has been married to an astronaut for probably her entire adult life and who has been through canceled vacations uh not being there for kids events things being you know moved around to adjust to his schedule probably look that they're moving houses several times i'm sure like all of that was communicated in like that one response from her and it is evidence of like what an incredible job she is doing communicating the history of their relationship in the character of Marilyn Lovell. I think it's important too that they do have that history because then you don't have to have that kind of like, please don't go. Uh, I'm so scared scene. Like she knows the deal. She's been through all of this and like has stuck around. I feel like it makes their relationship feel a lot stronger mm-hmm. because of that. Yes. And they get to shortcut some of that. Cause there's the other wife that she's with um, at the mm-hmm. launch who's way more worried and she's reassuring her and afterward she's like so calm and the 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 friend is like how are you so calm and she's like i'm not like i'm terror like i'm terrified inside but i'm used to it i'm just gonna stay tense until he comes back but he'll, like but like with assurance that like she knows he's gonna come back like she she has the confidence she, she knows like i've been through this before i don't have to i don't have to get too worked up about it. i'm still gonna worry but i know he's coming back and, and it's interesting too you know the way that they kind of like get to uh, let Kathleen Quinlan and you know Marilyn Lovell occupy that same lane as Jim does, but for the ladies, for the families, mm, right? right? Like she is the steadfast, like highly knowledgeable, super competent wife. You know, she's the best at being a wife and a lover to an astronaut and the most like emotionally in control. 
Um, there's that really, really good scene where she goes to tell uh, Jim's mom what's happened because she's at sort of like the mm-hmm. the old folks home. They can't get it on TV or she's been in, unable to see it. And the daughters are there with her as well. And she is yeah, I mean, very sugarcoating, right? She's, she's very uh, deliberate in the way that she's saying everything where there's been an accident, there was an explosion. Jim is fine, but it is dangerous. And, you know, things are, things need to go right for this to happen. And the daughters, at least like one daughter, the youngest is like breaking down, just like losing her shit behind her, like slowly. And she remains like that, like completely just emotionally aware and like attuned person and gets to just be the really competent guy in the room. I think she really helps too to carry through this uh, main thread of the movie like a point that it's trying to make that you're not going to help anybody by freaking out. So just like keep it cool. (laughs) Totally. And she has a couple of explosive moments. One in particular that still just sends chills down my spine as a child. I just was so taken by her and her performance in particular when she's on the phone and she first finds out that there's been an explosion and she's trying to get information and she's like, well, they're saying, you know, they might not have enough oxygen. Like, tell me what's going on. Can they breathe? And she's asking all these questions. We don't hear what she's getting back, but we can mm. assume that it's a bunch of bu- bureaucratic bullshit. And she says, no, don't give me any of that NASA bullshit. And it's such a fucking good line. And she so delivers good. it perfectly. <laughs> and that's like one of like maybe three moments where we actually see her explode either in pain or anger. Um, and the rest of the time she totally has her shit together, but those moments she plays beautifully. And that moment when she's on the floor crying, kind of sitting next to the, the speaker where they can hear, you know, the astronauts up in space. Like, I just can't imagine what that must've felt like. And she just, she, she plays those scenes beautifully. Henry, don't you ever sleep? I, uh, I have a request from the news people. Uh Uh-huh. They're out front here, and they want to put a transmitter up on the lawn. Transmitter? It's kind of a tower for live broadcast. I thought they didn't care about this mission. They didn't even run Jim's show. Well, it's more dramatic now. Suddenly people are... Oh, if landing on the moon wasn't dramatic enough for them, why should not landing on it be? Look, I, um... I realize how hard this is, Marilyn, but the whole world is caught up in it. It's the no, story Henry. Since... Those people don't put one piece of equipment on my lawn. If they have a problem with that, they can take it up with my husband. He'll be home on Friday. Uh, Brandon, Charlie uh, teased to me that you have a couple of things to say about this movie's infatuation with urine. It goes beyond this movie. Okay, well, let's talk about it. <laughs> so when I was going to watch this movie last night, I was doing my now watching post. I always got to have screen caps in my now watching post. So like, I'm looking for a screen cap with a peeing scene. No one, everyone's a coward. I couldn't find one. I had to go make one. So I just find the part in the movie. I found the script and I found exactly, okay, it's 40% through the movie. I found the scene. I took the screen cap. But while I was looking for a screen cap, what I found is that a lot of threads about how often Tom Hanks pees in movies, and it's more than you'd expect. What? And then I spent like an hour researching how often Tom Hanks pees in movies. 
The Green Mile. Yeah, the Green Mile. A lot of the Green Mile is about him kissing. He he pees in the ocean in Castaway. He pees in space in Apollo 13. Um, Having to hold her pee is a big deal in Apollo 13. I believe one of them, I think the real life uh, level got sick because he had to hold his pee so much. Um, He pees in in Forrest Gump. He holds and he says he tells JFK that he has to pee real bad. Because mm, um, he drank all sleepless the Dr. in Peppers. Seattle has peeing the league of their own. He pees for 53 seconds on screen and the burbs. He pretends to pee so he can spy on his neighbor uh, and the money pit. He gets peed on by a statue, uh, like a fountain. Yes. In the terminal, yes. he's holding his pee so that he can wait for a job interview. And then when he gets yeah. the call that the job was, was taken by someone else, he rushes to the bathroom. Captain Phillips, he pisses off the side of the boat. Importantly, not part of the real story. Found a headline that was the real Captain Phillips says, they didn't let me urinate. So he had to pee. He has to get it in the movie, even if it's not accurate. And Road to Perdition, peeing saves his life. And in Saving Private Ryan, he tells a story about a guy who peed on other soldiers' vests. Yeah, Vecchio. That is 12 movies. He has been in 90, I think 93 movies. 12 of them, 12 of his starring roles are piss centric or piss adjacent. Hmm. 10% of his output basically at yeah. this point has some sort of piss. <laughs> and it's 30% through 2000, <laughs> like 80 to 2000. It's 30% of his movies. So clearly whatever like op this is worked on you, Brandon, because you ended up going down this rabbit hole, right? Mm. Like it, it it like the 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 urine soaked Hank's agenda like made its way into your subconscious enough to be like I need a screenshot of this constellation urine thing and then were motivated to go down this path. So great job, CIA. You did it. It's it's, a- it's my it's my activation phrase. Apparently, is just seeing Tom Hanks <laughs> pee. Brandon has a big Pepe Silvia web of pictures of uh, Tom Hanks peeing. <laughs> I mean, I basically do. I did make a letterbox sure list called Tom Hanks Piss Boy. <laughs> oh, my God. This is blowing my mind right now. This is yeah. like very. It, I was focused on it for like an hour. Uh, I was telling like people like I'm like, I'm not I'm probably not, I'm going to try not to mention this on Hit Factory, but I'm probably going to mention it. How could you not? That would be so disappointing. Yeah, that's gold. Like that's that's perfect material for hip. It is gold, we, actually. Yeah. There you go. Hey, hey. I am. Does anyone want to pathologize this or explore like what the fuck is going on here, or do we just think that like I think it's a beautiful mystery. I think maybe he just has like a secret like piss play thing. I, I think maybe like, he just thinks P is funny. I think P is funny. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it's just like a little like running joke that he has, mm-hmm. or it's just like a thing that like you know uh, with other great dad core middle brow kind of qualities that that tom hanks is infatuated with. maybe one of these things is like you know you know the mark of a man is just you know ping ping where you can and when it's about verisimilitude that's right yeah it's about part of it is the, <laughs> part of it is the discipline of being able to hold it during important life events but another aspect of it is being able to go wherever you damn well please when when uh the environment permits yeah he's just flexing I also think like, uh, I mean, I'm going to say something semi-serious, sorry. Um, But like, it's interesting to think about the ways in which like Tom Hanks in a lot of his roles, like we don't sexualize him as a leading man, right? Like Mm -hmm. he very rarely is because he sits in sort of a very distinct box. He is a manly man, yes, but he's not 
he's not a sexual object. So I'm wondering if the insistence on, you know, some sort of reference to peeing is a way to get the audience to think about his dick without like putting him in a sex scene. Mm. Just throwing that I out I always think you're going to go with it. Just it's, it's unsexy in general. That, that too. Just leaning that into too. it. Maybe Tom Hanks is just like really, you know, it, prostate health is important to him. Maybe it's just like, you know, advocacy for, you know, urinary health, making sure that you keep the tract uh, unencumbered. Always pee after sex, drink lots of water. It's to help. Like he is the quintessential like every man movie star. That's how he relates to the common common guy. Every man pees. Mm. It's the one thing we all do. Yeah, it's true. Urinating and catching COVID were like his two things that he did to try to be relatable. (laughs) (laughs) It's weird because he is he is often cast as like a sort of stand-in for an everyman, like an everyman, right? But he is always playing like really exceptional men in mm-hmm. in his films. He's he's an interesting uh, an interesting cultural artifact, mm-hmm. I think. It's one of our last movie stars. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we talk about this a lot on the Dadcore Cinema Club uh, about movie star performances and how pretty much every movie we've covered so far has been movies like a movie star performance when i say that i mean not people disappearing into a role but this is someone doing very little but doing a doing a lot with a little and mm-hmm. so like tom hanks this movie is it's not a very big performance it is he's doing a lot with just like very little in his facial expressions like he is just he's a man who is doing a hard job it's a perfect and compelling performance but it's not a big one it's one that you mm-hmm. have to care about tom hanks like if you don't like tom hanks this performance is not for you and I mean, Hanks is that, you know, uh, front, back, left and right. He mm-hmm. is almost always the same kind of guy. He really runs into trouble when he tries not to be yeah. the same kind of guy. Like I think about him like stretching a lot of his performances in like Cloud Atlas, which I think is a, a, a OK movie. I think it's actually pretty good. I think he does the best he can. But it, some of it is a little awkward. It's one of those things, though, like where even if you don't love the performance, it's interesting to see a movie star do something like mm. that for like sure they had it's like just worthwhile a, a, as an experiment i think oh. yes i think he's incredible in cloud atlas like i think it's okay. one of the few times he's been asked to stretch and he like he rarely gets to stretch beyond the movie star kind of performance he does in cloud atlas he's asked to do that six different times and i love every single one of them i i mean i think he does you know varying degrees of like good to to really really good in that in that movie, I, you know, I won't say which one specifically I think are, are you know, within that that range. Uh, but I, I don't know if you've also seen, you know, the the trailers for uh, the, the new Elvis movie. Yeah. That Bob Lerman's doing. <laughs> He's doing such a voice in that. He's doing a big time voice in that. And it's like it is interesting seeing him in like the landscape now of like modern movies reckoning with that idea that there isn't really like a carve out anymore for like a movie star to just be a movie star unless really like you're in action cinema right like tom cruise still gets to kind of do it i mean mm. uh, liam neeson does it a little bit but like you know statham mostly for it. like statham does it uh but but for like a dramatic actor you don't really get to do that much anymore like you actually do have to kind of like take some swings and like do some kind of like well, character roles and especially as he's getting older I think he just like wants to stretch. Like I think Tom Hanks wants to do a movie star role. They they give it to him. Like you know, I mean, he he did a movie star performance with that when he played Mister Rogers. Like he didn't he didn't go deep into a, a Mister Rogers performance. That's he very true. much he played the yeah. nice Tom Hanks guy, 
which is compelling if, if you really like Tom Hanks. I think he's like one of the people that still gets to do movie star stuff. Although it is interesting that he has, he has decided to branch out only in really the last 10 years of his career. Mm-hmm. You're saying you get to give movie star performances in action movies, but we were talking a little bit uh, when we were talking about the Equalizer a few weeks ago that like a lot of the time, if you go into that mode like Neeson did, you lose a lot of the the critical juice or like you can kind of become mm-hmm. a yes. joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and that like nobody really other than Denzel has been able to like keep the prestige and gravitas yeah. while also like <laughs> doing the kind of schlocky action gig. I would say the only other person that maybe comes close is Tom Cruise because I think the Mission Impossible franchise has a certain sort of elevated mystique around it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was thinking about that when you when you all were talking about it, that, that Denzel specifically um, is really the only one left. You're right. It is a it is a challenging thing to bounce back from. And it's also interesting to see that a lot of these like dramatic actors from the 80s and 90s did sort of move into that action fair. Space. I'm kind of curious to see that like if these roles continue to stop being around if Hanks ever if we ever get like a John Wick Tom Hanks right <laughs> <laughs> that'd be I mean I would watch that <laughs> you can bet though that if there is any sort of like John Wick style Tom Hanks movie that it still has some sort of like period embellishments like it's gonna be like a Tom Hanks does like an inglorious bastards type thing. Tom Hanks does Captain Phillips too. This time he's back for revenge. There you go. <laughs> I'd be here for it. And with that, I think we have exhausted a very entertaining conversation on the Ron Howard film, Apollo 13 with our friends from the dad course cinema club, Brandon and Charlie fellas. Thank you again so much for joining us today. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, Hit factory. It's been a privilege podcasting with you. Thank you so very much. The feeling is mutual. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the show already, a little bit about what Dadcore means, but where can people find each of you individually and, and listen to the show? If you want to check out the show, follow our Twitter account at Dadcore Cinema, or you can go to dadcorecinema.club. That'll take you to our Anchor FM page. You can see the podcast, any service you want. It's all there. Uh, follow me, Brandon, at that one guy 64 on Twitter. Yeah, and I'm uh, the Tumboy on Twitter. <laughs> Yes, you are. Uh, well, thanks so much, gents. We will make sure to link to all of that so people can uh, check out the show. Listen to Dadcore Cinema Club. They're doing great work. They're talking about great movies, the kind that you uh, always just want to flip on or, or catch if they're right in the middle of them on cable. Uh, we love the show. Happy to have you guys here. Please come back anytime. If you want to follow along with us, you can do so at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, you can also subscribe to our Patreon for bonus episodes bi-weekly at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. And we will catch you all the next time. See ya. See ya.